Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Here We Are Today. Uh, My guest is a professor of psychology at UCLA and uh, social cognition neuroscientist Matt Lieberman is here. Uh, He is also the author of Social, um, How Our Brains Are... (laughs) What's the subtitle? I just (laughs) asked So close. So Ah, close. (laughs) I could start it over again, but I think it's kind of funny. It's fine. People have actually said it should be called How Our Brains Are Wired to Connect, but it's actually Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. Why Our Brains Are Wired But I've gotten that comment actually on Amazon. (laughs) It should be called. Oh, don't read your Amazon comments. (laughs) Actually, for books, it seems like they're pretty nice. They're nice compared... Yeah, yeah. yeah. readers are nice. Throw up some YouTube videos. Yeah, no. No, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. Just the books. Um... Uh, well, it, it's a fantastic book, um, Thank you. and I've I've been reading it. I'm almost finished. I have like 50 more pages. Well, if you like it, you should stop now. <laughs> <laughs> the end is the worst. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. I like just gaining all of the information and not understanding what to do with it. That's right. What that's... I, so that's I'm leaving that part. Off. I'm, I'm going to create my own. Path. So you're like an academic. You want <laughs> yeah. all the information, but you don't want to do anything. With it. That's cool. That's exactly. Cool. Yeah. Um, so this is a this is a subject that comes up a lot in um, a lot of books that I read, and I I don't think we've talked about it on the program yet. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little static. In okay, good. Um, but it's this idea of why are our brains so big and fancy? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, the, the thing. It seems in hindsight right. very obvious. That's right. like, well, we can think better and, right. and faster and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. But yeah. but there's there's a huge cost involved to these big brains, and and no one ha- seems to have a clear answer of exactly what drove um, that growth in our evolutionary past. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I remember growing up in school and sort of people saying, you know, the reason we have our big brains is because they make us smarter. And that's true. I mean, that's certainly true in a sense. Uh, So if you think about like, you know, pretty much every human on the planet has a higher IQ than like every like uh, baboon on the planet. Like there's pretty much no overlap between those two. Stupid and baboons. yes, stupid baboons. <laughs> it's okay. There's some aliens saying the same thing about <laughs> us. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely a difference, but when people started looking carefully uh, and in particular, this guy, Robin Dunbar, who's a professor um, at Oxford University in England, he looked at like 30 different primates, and humans are at the far end, we're like the top primates, but he looked at all these different primates, and he looked at what's associated with them having bigger brains than other primates, and the idea was 
their brains must have gotten bigger at each step because of those things that was making their brains bigger. And so we looked at IQ uh, and their ability to like solve problems in their environment, and that was related, but it wasn't the best thing that was related to um, uh, how big their brains were. The best predictor was the size of the groups that the species tended to live in. Um, so the larger the primate brain, humans being at the very end of the scale, the larger the size of the groups that they could sort of get along with. And that's really, really important because like being in a bigger group is useful. You can build houses and pyramids or you know whatever else you want to build um, when you have more people working together. But larger groups also come with risks and costs. So in most of the primate world, when you get together more and more of a group, what you start getting is like mate poaching, right? So like mm. one guy will try to take another guy's, uh, you know, wife or whatever you would call it in that environment. And you also get food stealing, right? So the two basic resources that you want are more likely to be taken if you're in a larger group. And so you need coalitions and things like that where you can basically say like, look, I'm going to get together with the right gang of other people in my group and they'll make it so that you're afraid to steal my stuff. And then we can sort of have this like, you know, detente where none of us is going to steal anyone else's stuff because we all know the consequences are bad. Humans have brains that are big enough to keep track of all the different people and who gets along with who, who's scared of who, who has power and status and would be nice enough to sort of scratch my back if I scratch theirs, which is literally how it works with other primates. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, so that turns out to be really one of the brain's greatest innovations is that it lets us, you know, go to a movie theater and sit with hundreds of other people without anyone trying to steal anyone else's popcorn, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's like civilization. That's like pleasant civilization. Our brains let us do that. That's one of the most special things about our brains. Well, it's interesting because, and in, in that's the, uh, he came up with the Dunbar number, right? Which is um, the idea that well, we, we can get to know like 150 people really Yeah, the way well, he puts or? it is, he says that, you know, on average, people have about 150 people that they could ask for some kind of small favor. It's the, you know, could you lend me a cup of sugar, sort of level. It's not that they're your best friends. They're not the person you necessarily go to if you're going through a divorce or something like that. But if you think about it, it's the size of a lot of work offices. Um, you know, there'll be 150 people where you know everyone well enough to say hi and they know who you are. Um, it's not your Facebook friends who might be a thousand people you met once for five minutes at a club or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, it's these people that you have some level of civility with you know each other, and you know a bit about how they relate to one another. Hmm. And there's lots of organizations through history, like through the 1700s, he said like most villages tended to max out at about 150 or 180 or something like that. There's lots of different human groups over history, military groups and so on, that tend to max out at about that size. Yeah, that's so interesting, and, and that seems like one of the riddles with how, how did... Uh, because humans then cooperate in these huge numbers that right. that are way outside of 150, and it and, and it's a little easier to understand how when someone's immediately in your tribe, or when you all live in one small mm -hmm. town and everyone gets to know everyone, and it, it's it's kind of easy to understand kind of this reciprocity, uh, and uh, I can't talk all of, all of a sudden, <laughs> and. and and, um, you know, doing on to others and this sort of yeah. thing. But, but to, you know, like you said, primates literally scratch their backs. But we, we seem to be able to um, uh, share kind of ideas yeah. and, and bond over, over these concepts of, like, justice. Right. And, and um, uh, because there were, there were a lot of other human species other than sapiens, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, Neanderthals sure. had, it's my understanding that they actually had larger brains um, than we had, or at least as big. Yeah, I mean, there's debate about those things, and there's debate about how their brain relative to their body size, which is one of the key sort of indicators. Right, right. Because the bigger your body... Yeah, well, the bigger your body is, the more your brain has to do sort of basic housekeeping just to keep your ability to walk and balance and eat and so on. And so there's this idea that... 
if you look at the ratio of brain size to body size, you can look at something that's sometimes referred to as cognitive reserve. It's sort of the extra brain you have relative to what you need to just manage your body. And that's where you start to get sort of innovation and creativity. You sort of have brain regions that can do other things or brain tissue that can do more. And one of the things that Dunbar said was like, you know, primates, if they want to sort of, uh, you know, uh, suck up to another primate, they literally will go and like scratch their back and pick nits off of them and groom them and so on. Humans groom through words, right? Mm -hmm. So I can sit in a room of 50 people and say, wow, what an attractive audience. And suddenly I've scratched the back of 50 people all at once, right? right? When you tell a joke, you're doing something for hundreds of people or more all at once. And so words are really a kind of um, evolutionary technology that allows us to go beyond uh, sort of working with one person at a time. And obviously in the modern world, now we have all these other kinds of technology that are evolving way faster than we are if we're evolving at all at this point. And they allow us to, you know, do something like this podcast where you can, you know, every week you probably talk to thousands of people through this medium. And so you're reaching even more than you could in a large audience if you shouted kind of thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it, just so much, uh, I, I mean, there's a cost incurred. If you're scratching uh, the back of another primate, that takes time and energy, and that's only one person. Maybe you could scratch two at once right. or something. <laughs> but you can use these words, which yeah. to us are quite effortless, um, mm -hmm. you know, seemingly. And, and, and we can communicate and share this information with a great number of people to very little cost to right. ourselves, often to our benefit. Mm -hmm. Often people like us more for sharing information. Right. right. Um, could you talk a little bit about the default mode? Sure. Because um, this was this was actually the first that I had heard of this idea. Cool. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's one of the things that uh, I'm very excited about now and wrote a lot about uh, in the book. So... Um, you know, there, there are parts of the brain that, loosely speaking, we can say, uh, tend to be more involved and active when you do things that are analytical, that are related to IQ. If you're doing math, if you're being, you know, using logic or reasoning, these regions are very reliably going to come on and be associated with how you do. Um, and, and then there are other regions, well, you know, let me describe a study, um, a very boring study. So I bring you into uh, my lab, and I lay you in an MRI scanner, and I say, you're going to do math problems for a minute. So I give you simple, you know, second grade math problems, three plus four, five plus two, and so on. You do that for a minute, and then you get a break for a minute. And then you do math for another minute, and then you get a break for another minute. And that just sort of goes back and forth. If we look in your brain, this sort of IQ or analytical network is going to do just what we would think it would do. It's going to turn on when you're doing math, and it's going to quiet down when you're resting in between the math. There's this other network in the brain that bizarrely does the opposite. It quiets down typically when you're doing anything analytical, and it comes on when you finish, when you're seemingly just resting or zoning out uh, or not doing much of anything. It also comes on when we dream. And so for a long time, um, this network was just referred to as the default network because it seems to come on by default when you're not doing anything in, in particular. And scientists didn't really know what this network was for, what it was doing. Did they think that it was maybe like consolidating new information or something, or, or they just didn't? They no, just had no idea. There, I mean, there were a number of hypotheses, and none of them, I think, panned out particularly well. One of the hypotheses was this is the network for doing easy stuff because when we give you hard stuff, it goes off, and so maybe it goes on when you're doing easier stuff. There's a a network that it's about. Uh, sort of daydreaming, uh, mind-wandering, just random thinking. Take um, the load off of the Yeah, take the load off, and this sort of goes up. And I think that um, there's a couple different accounts that are all going to be partly true, but the one that a lot of people in my field have focused on is that these same brain regions that come on when you stop doing math are pretty much the same brain regions you see come on whenever you think about whatever's going on in somebody else's mind. Right? So if you're playing poker with someone and you're trying to figure out if they're bluffing right now, um, or if you're speaking to an audience and you're trying to figure out, like, does this audience like me or not? Right. Anytime you're trying to figure out what they're thinking, feeling, hoping, whatever it is, 
this network comes on. And social psychologists call this the mentalizing network because you're thinking about the mental states or the mind of another person. But these were two parallel scientific tracks. There were people studying this default network in one place, people studying the mentalizing network in the other, and it took a while before we realized, oh, we're looking at the same thing, but we're looking at it when you make someone think about someone else's mind, and you guys are looking at it when you just aren't giving them anything to do. And so you still had to figure out why are those two networks you know, the same? Because we can set up a study where I give you one math problem and a two-second break, and then another math problem and a two-second break. And this default network will still come on during those two-second breaks. But I bet you're not thinking about anything social, right? Because if I give you those math problems, you just get ready for the next math problem. So that was a puzzle, and it's a puzzle that we've been really focused on in my lab trying to solve. What does that sort of network do for us? And we think it does some really cool uh, social things. It, it basically helps prepare us to be better social creatures. Uh, it may do other things too. In fact, I, I suspect it does. But we've been focused on the real direct ways it seems to help us do that. And there's, you know, there's different studies I can describe um, that sort of get into what it's doing. Yeah, that, that's sort of the the top level description. I mean, is this is this explaining why, like in school, the second I stopped doing my math test or whatever, I would immediately be daydreaming about girls that I liked or or yeah. who, who was going to pick me for basketball I'm, at recess. I mean, I think that's one consequence right. is is that you know social aspects of our lives are really really important. They might have been even more important. Uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, because uh, the social unit of analysis was everything. You didn't have technology that could allow a person to sort of get by on their own. Yeah. Uh, and so you really had to get along with the group and understand the group. And so having your brain... And it was just, I mean, now no one was like sitting in desks and learning no. all of, uh, uh, like getting history lessons and, you know, that sort no, of thing. It was all... So much. Whatever history lesson was, you know, a story around the campfire or right. something like that, a very social experience. Yeah, no, it was people going and doing things in groups and you had to be able to do those things well together and coordinate... So having a brain that keeps returning your attention to that kind of uh, attention, that level of analysis, that kind of uh, frame on the world uh, is something that's very, very useful. It keeps bringing you back and getting you ready to sort of be a social creature, and that's what we needed 10,000 years ago. And it's still something we need a whole lot today. That hasn't changed that much. So what uh, I interrupted, you're going yeah. to mention a couple of the tests that... Yeah, so there's, there's sort of two studies uh, that we done, we've done that we think are pretty interesting. And one I wrote about in the book. Um, and in that one, we did one of these kinds of studies I've described where we gave people a math problem and then two seconds of nothing. And then um, a problem where you might look at somebody uh, holding a can of soda up and you'd be asked to think about how they're doing that. So you're focused on their bodily mechanics, but not really anything about their psychology. And in the third kind of trial, you might see that same hand lifting the soda, and you'd be asked, why is that person doing that? And you'd think, well, because they're thirsty or because they want to be healthy or unhealthy or whatever it is. Now you're thinking about their mind. Now you're thinking about their goals and so on. So we looked at these little two-second periods of rest before they would get these different trials. So at this point, you have a little rest. You have no idea what's coming next. You don't know if you have math next or the body thing next or the mind thing next. But your brain will turn on this default network anyway. And the more it turns on that default network during that short little rest, the better you'll do on the next problem if and only if that problem involves thinking about the other person's mind. So it seems to be um, something that primes you and gets you ready to do exactly that kind of problem and mm. not these other kinds of problems. And that's a pretty big statement about our brain making a bet that that's the smartest thing it can do in its downtime is to get us ready to think socially, right? It could be our brain is wired to get us ready to do math problems every time there's a break in the action. But it doesn't look like, at least from what we've seen, that that's what our brain is doing. It's getting us ready to be social. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, when I meditate, I mean, mm -hmm. the idea is just to be mindful and not, and not attached too much to any one thought or anything. And, and um, you know, you just get distracted. It's inevitable. And then noticing when you're distracted and what's distracting you. 
And sometimes it is like to-do list mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say more often than not, it, it's, it's actually one of my most frustrating things because I'll, I'll like get to this place where I feel like I'm really in it. And then I'm like, oh, man, I got to tell people right, about this. Right. <laughs> like this yeah. That it happens. I, yeah. like, I want to share it with, even though it's right. impossible. But I, I, yeah. I can't share this like one mental this odd like mental state with other people. And, that's and right. Although that's what uh, got my wife into psychology. She always dreamed as a kid of being able to build a machine where you could allow one person to step into another person's experience and do that. Uh, um, but liked, we but we don't have that machine the, yet. Uh, what's the Malkovich movie? Being John. Oh, Malkovich. being John Malkovich. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a fun one. Yeah, I miss Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about? Um, uh, I was, well, there's a few things that, uh, one is the idea of, um, of physical and social pain mm-hmm. um, being closely connected. Yeah, sure. A little bit about that. Uh, so I mean, this was sort of the, one of the first things that I was involved in um, as a social neuroscientist, and it's uh, my wife Naomi Eisenberger's uh, work that we did together starting in the early 2000s. Um, and we were interested in the extent to which, um, the fact that the, you know, the language we use to talk about social pain, when we say you hurt my feelings, uh, or she broke my heart, the language of social pain sounds a lot like the language of physical pain. Uh, and it's actually been shown in many, many countries, many languages around the world, that when people talk about social pain, they use the language of physical pain. And it's not strictly romance languages. It's all over the world. So we were curious about the extent to which this is just a metaphor um, mm-hmm. that happens to spring up repeatedly all around the world. Um, or if maybe there's some sort of evolutionary basis for the brain treating uh, threats to our social well-being in kind of the same way it treats threats to our physical well-being, which is what pain is. It's a signal that your physical well-being is in danger, and social pain seems to kind of do the same thing. So, like you, you might describe someone as being warm or mm-hmm. cold, mm-hmm. and and these are these two different. It, it's it's tied to our physical system, but uh, warm's like, oh, I want to be close to that person. And yeah, no, there there is a, a growing amount of work, and and actually, some of the folks who have done that work have said that the work that we did on social pain was some of what inspired them to go think about Mm. whether warmth and cold is more than just a metaphor and, you know, could you see brain bases of of the overlap between those things. So so we went and ran a study uh, where we brought people in to the scanner. We laid them in the scanner, put goggles on them so they could see a video game that they were playing, and we told them that they were playing a game with two other people who were also in scanners. Um, That was a lie. Psychologists lie to subjects all the time. It's part of what (laughs) we do. Um, And they were playing a ball tossing game. So you sort of see yourself at the bottom of the screen and you throw the ball to the person at the top left and they throw it to the person at the top right and that person throws it to you. And you can decide who to throw it to, but you're just pressing one button or the other. It's so boring. Um, But we told people we're really interested in how three brains are coordinating, you know, and synchronizing their activity. We made up some story about, you know, why we would be having them play this game. And so they play the game, and it's boring for a while until it isn't. And the reason it becomes interesting uh, is that at some point, the two computer-controlled subjects stop throwing the ball to the real subject. Hey! Yeah. (laughs) They do not like it. I want to play! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And they keep their hand at the bottom of the screen, keeps rotating to get ready to catch every throw, and they never get the ball again. And people come out, and they are not happy. Um, <laughs> they're either a little depressed, they're angry. Uh, they always want to talk to us about, like, did you see what they did to me? And we have to say, no, we weren't watching, because we want them to go fill out questionnaires and things like that. And this is something, they, they've done this, like, physically in, in, in rooms, too. Yeah. had, like, yes. confederates in rooms tossing yeah. a ball it originally back and forth. And originally, everyone's yeah. playing catch, and yep. then it's just exactly. the two confederates. Yep, the... exactly. And then the two confederates stop throwing the ball to, yeah, the, yeah. to the real subject in the study. Um, so the point of doing this is that we can then look at what's going on in the brain when people were included versus when they get excluded, when they're rejected uh, from the game. And at the point at which they become rejected, what you see is that the same brain regions 
that are very responsive uh, and pretty selective for experiencing almost any kind of physical pain you could imagine. Those same brain regions come on when you experience social pain. Moreover, they come on to the extent that you say you were bothered by being left out of the game. So if you say you were really bothered by being left out, your activity levels in those regions would go up more than someone else who says, yeah, I didn't like it, but it didn't bother me so much. Hmm. So those are the sort of initial findings. Uh, other findings, I think, persuaded a bunch of other people. Uh, one of the big findings that came out years later was that you can make the effects I described all go away if you give someone Tylenol. Right, So yeah. the same medication that you take for your headache seems to actually work a bit on your, your heartaches as well. However, I must caution anyone listening to this, uh, Tylenol is super toxic, so don't go treating yourself with Tylenol. 500 people a year die from Tylenol yeah, yeah. overdoses. It's terrible for you, so don't do that. It's a scientific finding in a controlled setting, but it does work. Right, right, right. Well, it's interesting because... It's it's kind of awkward to even talk about because it's like no we're not telling you to do drugs we're just saying it will help your social pain right um, but it's uh, it, it's it's funny because first off this so so when people that are I guess you're still finding the same thing because not everyone was bothered by this mm-hmm. by by this task right I think that's important most people are bothered most by it I mean people. it's it's an amazing thing like Kip Williams who invented the task with the actual people throwing a tennis ball around he's found that people get upset even when they're left out by folks who I think say they are members of the KKK like <laughs> even when you're left out with people from people you despise oh, what? It's so basic that even, you know, if you despise right. the people, you still don't want them to leave you out. And I still have trouble wrapping my head There's around that one. There's still a few people out there yeah. that are just, I, I mean, yeah. I, I like to, I mean, for picturing my, of course, hindsight, you yeah. already know the results. But picturing myself at the scene is like, if someone started throwing me a ball in a waiting room, and this was like a little kid or something, I'd be like, uh, right. this is awkward. Why are we doing this? Right. And then once they started, they'd be, I'd be like, wow, they must have picked up on, on me. Well, sure. Maybe to. if they could see your face and you looked very displeased by the whole thing, I could see why they might do that. So I had, uh, this is something really interesting because I've actually ran this by some academics before. Yep. And I believe, I, I, I'm sure I've talked about it on the podcast several times. Mm-hmm. And no one has given me like... A really satisfying answer for this, but I went through um, a pretty serious injury last year. Okay. And I was on um, painkillers quite a bit. And one of the things that I would say about about Oxy is that it felt like love. Yeah. Like, it felt like... Like even if it, even if like my physical pain wasn't that bad, right? And and by the way, I stopped taking them months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but but anyway, even if it wasn't that bad, if I was like, I I had to I bro- I broke both my feet and had to like live with my parents for a few months. And right. Stuff. Whoa. And so it was That's like serious. it was real. Yeah. It was it, it was pretty serious. Some major surgeries and everything. And so so not only was it physically painful, but it was like. It's not. I didn't mind like being home and visiting my family, but it was socially embarrassing yeah. to be like you know having yeah. to be taken care of by my mommy and everything, <laughs> and and honestly, all of that would go like when I when I had oxy, I would feel like uh, like I would feel just like the sense of love. I would want to just call up all my friends mm-hmm. and just like tell them how much they cared about me. <laughs> tell them how much they cared about you, <laughs> or, or how, how how much I cared about them. I just misspoke. Yeah. My, my words aren't working. Yeah. I, I want to tell you how much you care about me. <laughs> you were impersonating Donald Trump or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I read that work and I was like, well, maybe that was part of the influence because I was, I, I was also, there was a fair amount of social pain in my life right. at that time right. as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, this is another wing of, of that kind of research and it's not something I have as much expertise with, but... You know, both physical and social pain uh, can be managed with opiates, Mm. but opiates are also something that are central to our social attachments. And so opiates can produce this sense of euphoria that's both a physical euphoria and also something that can be a kind of social emotional kind Mm. of euphoria as well. So, you know, I don't think 
that we always distinguish those things. And, um, you know, to the extent that some medication just takes away our physical pain, uh, I'm not sure that's usually the addictive part. I think it's the fact that it uh, can also make us feel a lot better socially. Yeah, yeah. That is uh, part of what can make it really addictive, especially if you're in a place where you're feeling a lot of social distress. Um, I think that's actually an easier way for it to be associated with addiction. I know people who work with opiate addiction, and they say it's often really tied into sort of social aspects of the lives of those Mm. folks. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And when, so, so, um, let me use a different example. You mentioned, God, I can't remember exactly what, but, but it was something about someone had electrodes put in um, mm. a part of their brain that made them feel social pleasure or something like that. They did it in rats first, and then there was So one. that's a pure, so that was a pure pleasure study. It was run in... 1972 or something and uh right they did it first in rats so there's a spot um in the brain that uh i'm jumping to like a whole different part of the book right now we're we're now talking about a different part of the brain but it's i'm wondering if it's connected in any way yeah um i i don't know i mean what i do know is is that this part of the brain that was in this initial study that was associated uh with pleasure people would press this button that would activate this particular region of the brain. Right. And the rats would basically press this button instead of eating. Like they just, they, just would, they would star themselves to death yeah. so they could keep pressing the button and activating this region. And then um, the human, they did it, I think, with one or two subjects. So it was much more limited. They got an electrode in there, and the humans were kind of the same way and really complained about them ending the study because it was great, apparently. Um, and, uh, and that region is associated with maternal caregiving. It's associated with, um, oxytocin processes. It's associated with, um, being good to other people and being empathic. So, um, so this is, this is where I'm, I I was wondering, uh, this is where I'm going with this. Yeah. I was wondering if, so, so if you're, if you're this patient, you're pressing this black box and um and you're feeling good mm-hmm. what what's the what's the cost of it like why why isn't it like opiates have a clear cost of addiction right. and everything else but um but why not wire our brain to to get a little more um positive pleasurable feelings from right. like social experiences right sure uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the because book. a lot of times a lot of uh, I think a lot of people listening are probably like uh, some people often want to avoid others. I mean, yeah. a lot of times yeah. in, in our everyday life, there's people that we're trying to avoid. There's sure. people that make us like strangers, make us feel awkward or judged or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of the Blade Runner account of sort of emotions and feelings. They all were sort of wired uh, in the book, at least. Um, so that they could sort of say, I want to dial up more of this mood or that mood Mm -hmm. or that emotion. Uh, The tricky thing about that is that then uh, your moods and emotions aren't tied to the things that were evolved for them to be tied to. So, you know, our emotions are largely very, very functional. They give us feedback about whether things are going well or poorly in the world. Um, So we get angry when our goals aren't being met. Right. And Mm -hmm. we get happy when we either meet our goals or move towards our goals uh, or something sort of unexpectedly positive happens. And uh, and so those things can motivate us. They can give us information about whether we're on the right track. And if you suddenly just sort of get happy all the time just for no reason at all. Right. Then they don't work as motivators to sort of help you move through the world. Right. right? And so then you're going to have a bunch of people who are kind of sitting in pods. And, uh, you know, that's going to be the end of the human race because none of them will procreate because they're already basically experiencing some kind of brain orgasm all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, right there in uh, Woody Allen's Orgasmatron at that point. And, <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not functional to do that all the time. Right, so, right. So, so the, the, the social and physical pain are, are um, in the same region. I've, it's my understanding that short pain and like long throbbing pain kind of are processed in two different ways and they kind of counteract one another so if you have like a mosquito bite that's like this uh, this long-term itch or whatever and and then you scratch it what what you're doing is actually causing just like a short amount of of 
more intense pain quick, which then cancels out the throbbing, the same reason why like massages mm-hmm. work and possibly acupuncture. Yeah. Um, do you think that part of the reason why people are like cutters or whatever mm-hmm. is because they're feeling this social pain and it's a way of it's a way of triggering, uh, it, it's a way of canceling that out for right. a little while. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, so I don't want to try to give right, a definitive right. answer, but it's certainly come up uh, before over the years. And, you know, if our brains, and this is one of the reasons you want to do neuroscience, if there are things that are unexpectedly kind of working in the same systems in the brain, um, then there's going to be weird interactions and things that are dynamics in the one system may start to become dynamics that bleed across the systems. And so pain has all sorts of strange dynamics uh, where you can get wind-up effects, where the same little pain repeated in a certain interval uh, can start to become increasingly more intensely painful. Or if you have someone touch this device that Bud Craig uh, who's a pain researcher in Arizona, showed me, uh, you sort of have these pipes next to each other that uh, alternate in being cold or hot, cold or hot, but none of, the, none of them on their own are painful, but if you touch across them, it can be very, very painful because of the way it stimulates our sort of heat and cold receptors simultaneously. It's not my area of expertise, but it was weird. Um, it suggests that you can get some of these same weird dynamics happening in the other realm, say, of social pain, that we never would have thought to to look at. So cutting, it gives you at least a new vantage point to ask questions like the one you're asking. If you think social and physical pain are linked at some level, mm. and I don't want to give the impression they are the same. No one confuses, you know, a broken ankle for a broken heart. You know, that doesn't happen. Um, but there's something that seems to be overlapping between them, then yeah, maybe sometimes when we cause ourselves physical pain, it can scratch that social itch in the same way that, you know, certain kinds of things we do after a mosquito bite makes that feel less painful as well. And at the same time, I mean, you make kind of the opposite or complementary point in your book that mm-hmm. that regarding bullying, mm-hmm. that you know, maybe we should be taking this, you know, if someone beats up your kid, right. you, you get upset. If someone makes fun of your kid, right. you, you think your kid's whining or something like that, or tell them to, tell them to, uh, you know, buck up or Yeah. And I, I, th- I do think we're in a time right now where schools are a lot more sensitive to that right. than certainly when I was in school. <laughs> right, and, right. and there are moments now when I do actually worry about it going too far in, know, in the other I direction. Know. So <laughs> I, I used to say that yeah, quite yeah, a bit, yeah. but, but now with all the trigger stuff, you know, and I guess comedians actually right. are some of the people at the vanguard of talking about college audiences and trigger warnings and stuff like that. And yeah, that stuff yeah. makes me very nervous. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sort of the people who used to be in favor of free speech are now saying let's limit free speech. Right, right, that's right. That's troubling. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also on the same page of this uh, social and physical pain stuff. Uh, so, we've we've clearly evolved to be um, social, and part mm-hmm. of and part of being social it makes sense to have this kind of reward and rejection or punishment mechanism mm-hmm. or, or whatever that makes you ruminate on the stupid thing that you said and at the bar the other night when you were too drunk. Right. But. Um, do you think that this is probably an unfair question to ask you because this is probably going to be speculation, but um, do you think that our social reward and punishment mechanisms evolved the way that they did because it was evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily beneficial in and of itself, or was it just that these social processes and these higher functions had to be built on top of, they evolved later and they had to be built on top of these pre-existing senses and wiring uh, for, say, physical sensations. I mean, it just seems like if you were to build an artificial intelligence, you wouldn't make it so that when its buddies make fun of it, it's like paralyzed and can't go to work the next day or well, whatever. Well, you might though, right? I think it's actually remarkably functional, right? So, you know, if you do something, uh, you know, really callous uh, to other people in your social group and then they do something socially mean in response that makes you feel awful and feel that kind of pain, 
it's going to change your behavior so that you don't do those things, right? It's a learning mechanism mm -hmm. as much as uh, anything else. And it tells you it's um, uh, one thing that people describe it as is it's like, a, it's like your gas gauge that tells you, like, am I sort of hitting the right level of fitting in with my group? And, you know, if evolution in an anthropomorphized sense is basically sensitive to groups do better, so people who are sensitive to getting along in their group are going to do better, and those groups are going to do better, then having a mechanism that tells you you're screwing up, you might get ostracized from the group, or the group isn't going to work as well because nobody likes you anymore, that's actually a pretty adaptive thing for a person to have. I mean, having your, you know, pain, like I, I've thought about this, like if I get a really bad stomach ache, um, wouldn't it be better if I just had something where like when something was wrong in my stomach, it just sent me a text message and said yeah, like, yeah. you know, stop drinking different kinds of alcohol. You know, you're going to make yourself sick. Right. And, but, but it didn't hurt. It just sent me a message. But like, you know, the message it sends through pain is way more adaptive because it actually changes your behavior. Right, right. That makes sense. That's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, you do still have to wonder if, uh, like, e even though it's, you know, this big fancy house, it was still built upon this foundation. Sure. And it's yeah. still, you still have to factor in. It's like, well, is that house square because that's the absolute best shape for the house? I completely or, agree. No, or, I completely agree. Um, but it may be that you know evolution didn't need to build this on top of the pain system, and so it's sort of both of these things. The pain mm. system might have been there, um, and uh, and this was the adaptive thing to build on top of it. However, and we we've never written about this, um, but it's something that Naomi and I discuss occasionally, which is the um, the anterior cingulate, which is one of the regions that's associated with this, um, the feeling of pain, not knowing where it is on your body, but, but really being bothered by it. That's associated with the anterior cingulate. And that first exists in mammals. So it's, that's something that comes when you go from uh, non-mammalian vertebrates to mammals. Okay, so that's a big neural structure that shows up right then. And... Uh, most of what you see when you go from non-mammals to mammals are all sorts of like parental caregiving behaviors. That's actually the big shift because we care for our young. Lots mm -hmm. of other vertebrates don't care for their young. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's an interesting argument to be made that the social pain may have come first, that the social pain may have been what needed to be built and that the physical pain distress part, not... You know, you could have reflexes, right? You could have that readout, the text message that automatically then ties into your behavior and makes you pull your hand out um, of the stove. You know, so like if an alligator or a crocodile touches something painful, is it experiencing the distress of pain or does it just have reflexes that the pain signal says pull your arm back and move away? In humans, we have that reflex, but we also have this psychological experience. And that seems to be very tied up in the regions that are associated with these mammalian specific processes. I don't know how far I would push that story, but it is a story that based on the data you actually can tell. It shows up when mammals show up and not before. That's interesting. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I also like the, um, uh, you, you wrote about the, the genetic, the OPRM1 yeah. that, that's, uh, that's connected with pain tolerance? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is one of the other studies. Um, Baldwin Way, who was a student with us, um, did this study where he did uh, genotyping of people who were going through the uh, social rejection paradigm that we use with that game Cyberball that people play while they're in the scanner. And uh, the OPRM1 gene uh, is a gene that we know from pain research. Uh, if you have one variant of that gene, you need more morphine to cope with your physical pain than other people need. The same people who have that variant where you need more morphine to cope with your pain are the same people who are more bothered when they're socially rejected, and they're the same people who um, uh, show a higher response in those brain regions when they're rejected. Uh, and so that's another piece of evidence that there really is this overlap between the social and physical pain systems. Do you think that... It, so is this... Is this the same reason why I, – I wonder if, like, these monks <laughs> – you ever see the guy that, like – or, you know, people will hold their hand over a candle or mm. whatever it might be. Um, I, wonder if, I wonder if that's <laughs> – I, 
I, I was thinking of some joke about how um, they're the reason why they're. Uh, what was it? It, it was about how they can handle the physical pain of it and also the social pain of looking stupid doing that. I don't know. I was trying to think of some <laughs> dumb thing about right. that. But do you think that people that have a low pain, physical pain tolerance or are on the lower end of this, do you think that they feel more empathy, like social empathy for people? So, I mean, this is a complicating, complicated and evolving issue. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, sort of having a pain system that seems more sensitive does seem like it would also in some ways make you more sensitive to seeing others in physical pain. And there's actually some work now suggesting that might be true for social pain um, as well. So, yeah, I, I do think that there's probably some truth to that, although empathy is tricky. If you ever, you know, if you're old enough that you used to see late night TV where, the, you know, the, the Africa... Uh, sort of infomercials would come on and you'd see the children with the distended stomachs, you know. That was like, oh, that's too much. I don't want to watch it. And you change channels, right? So in a sense, like the stronger the response you have, sometimes the less empathic your behavior will actually look because you're bothered by it too much. Yeah, don't don't they say that... um, Isn't there something with people with chronic depression... Um, their amygdala lights up, like their fear response or or, or attack response or whatever mm-hmm. is triggered the same as uh, most people. If you show people like a scary face or something right. like that, they they go into this fight or flight thing. But but depressed people, you can show them like sad scenes like that, and that's to them. Uh, more sorrow in their lives and right. thinking about uh, uh, more problems in the world right. is one of their biggest danger. Yeah, sure. And so this diff- this same kind of region of the brain lights up specifically. In, yeah, um, I don't know that study in particular, but it doesn't sound crazy. Um, I, who did it? I don't remember. Um, it's a thing. Though. Greg Siegel? Uh, I think so, I, I think I heard about it in um, just a lecture like Robert Sapolsky was giving or something like that. Gotcha. But I don't remember okay. the specifics. Yeah. But um, it, you know, speaking of that, I remember there was a point. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not the most charitable uh, person in the world. Okay. Um, and I, I. I do. By the way, I. I'm trying to be more charitable uh-huh. and, uh, and I have uh, each guest plug a charity of their sure. choice yeah. on this program. Actually, why don't you just do that? And then I'll get into my, my spiel of what is your charity of, sure. of the week. <laughs> you always see like, you know, when they're on master chef, top master chef yeah, yeah, or yeah. Uh, top chef master, they always have all the right. They're all sort of what's your charity. And then they replay them every week when they're on. Um, right. So, I mean, for me, the one that I, I would highlight is one called Metaviver. Um, and Metaviver is related, and it's for uh, individuals who have metastatic cancer. Um, a close friend of mine is uh, dealing with that, and, uh, and she's involved with this organization and raising money for them. And the sort of striking thing is that 30% of cancer patients uh, get metastatic cancer. Um, and when you have metastatic cancer... Uh, it's not going to go into remission. It's something that needs to be treated essentially every day for the rest of your life. Um, 30% of cancer um, individuals with cancer get metastatic cancer, but only 2% of the research dollars go to treating metastatic cancer. Uh, And so uh, I think there's a big disproportion there. And so money that goes to Metaviver uh, all goes 100% to specific research projects on metastatic cancer. That is um, fantastic. So everyone can go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and there will be a link to donate there and get more information. And also, uh, so, so this is what I was going to bring up. I was never the most charitable person in the mm-hmm. world, and I think part of the reason why I am doing – I mean, first off, there are a lot of selfish reasons mm-hmm. to – have my guests plug charities. There's not a ton of money to be made off podcasts. Anyway, there's, uh, makes me look good. It makes my guests look good. It Mm -hmm. makes it easier for me to get guests knowing that they can plug a charity and, and blah, blah, blah. There are plenty of selfish reasons, but I think that, um, I, I, I think one of the reasons why was just because I, I found myself becoming a bit more, um, empathetic last year when I was, 
when I went through this whole ordeal. Like I, I remember in January, I got a bone infection. I needed the surgery, and yeah. it was uh, I was on IV antibiotics, and I was in the middle of moving, and I was like not showering for days at a time because I was, mm-hmm. had IVs in my hand, a hole in my foot, and it was just it, it was about as miserable as I'd been. And I remember. I remember one day I was driving and I saw like a homeless guy on the side of the road. And sometimes I'll give uh, homeless people a dollar or two. I don't know that it's doing any good. I think it's right. more just to make myself feel better right. than anything. Okay. But um, but I was like, oh, if this if if this guy's got it worse than me right now, mm-hmm. then I can give him a few dollars. And and I do think that me being more vulnerable um, than usual did heighten my sense of empathy and i think that is part of the reason why i opted to do this mm-hmm. podcast for charity rather than um rather than for profit uh because there's certainly more selfish reasons to do it for profit and right. charge people sure and uh, so so i don't know i, I it, yeah I, I don't know if uh yeah i mean this is this is an interesting interesting topic philosophically you know thousands of years old which is um, really about the nature of altruism. Does altruism exist? And my dad and I actually debate this uh, pretty much every summer when I'm home in New Jersey. Uh, we'll you know, be in the pool at some point, and we'll sort of rehash this same story. And it sort of seems like whenever someone does something, we kind of look at them and try to figure out, like, what's the real reason they're doing that? What, what are they getting out of it? And it might be sort of a long con of some kind. So, you know, I want to look really generous in front of these people so that 10 years from now... When they're writing their will, they'll think of how what a good person I was. And, you know, and so it really could be like really strategic. And, and humans do strategic Machiavellian things that aren't altruistic. But at the same time, there's really nice data now, I, I believe at least, that shows that um, our brains will, under certain circumstances, respond with a stronger reward or pleasure response when we see others doing well than when we see ourselves doing well. Um, and uh, th- there's a couple of studies that point to this. One is a charity study specifically. Uh, there, there was a study, a couple studies done now, where um, if you are a college student in a study and you win $5 at a particular point in the study, there's a part of the brain uh, called the ventral striatum, and it's associated with reward processes, and it will come on nice and strongly uh, if you win money. But if on the next trial you get to donate $5 to a charity that you endorse, um, you'll actually show a stronger response in that same region. Uh, So that's one case where giving to charity, giving is actually better than receiving as far as your brain's reward system is concerned. Um, There's there's another study I really, really love. I had nothing to do with any of these studies. Um, There's a study where... Um, you and I might be sort of playing against each other. And on each trial, only one of us can win money. Before the game started, though, there was a lottery. And one of us won at once $50, okay? So if I won the $50 before the game starts, when we start playing, I'll actually show more of a reward response if you win rounds than when I win rounds. Because it sort of feels like it's not fair that I got all this money up front that you didn't get. And so now my brain feels better in some sense that you got a dollar and I lost a dollar that I could have gotten. Mm. That's not the story we typically tell ourselves about every action is a purely selfishly motivated action. And it suggests that we really do care about this. And that's, I I think, a pretty cool insight about the fact that not that we're always – unselfish and altruistic we clearly are both selfish and unselfish but i think it's pretty awesome that we really are both and that we're we're wired that way and it makes sense if you think that humans do better when they work well in groups that they would actually be concerned about the welfare of others in the group for its own sake not for some benefit that person might give back to them hmm How did that evolve? I mean, (laughs) that's so complicated. That is the, uh, let's not even say the million dollar question. That's the Nobel Uh, Prize question. Um, And and people argue and, you know, evolutionarily sort of more inclined folks than myself argue deeply about how could you see that kind of mechanism evolving? And people talk about group selection and other people say that's impossible. That's not the way it works. I'm not... um, 
you know, an evolutionarily evolutionary biologist, so I can't really weigh in. Other than I'm persu I'm persuaded that it actually happens in humans, and right. so that means it got there somehow. somehow. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I'm not the right person to answer that right. question. Fair but enough. what I don't like is if someone says, "Well, it couldn't have happened evolutionarily, therefore it doesn't exist." It exists. Now you <laughs> yeah, have yeah, to explain yeah. it. That's not right. my job. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Um, all right. Well, here's something yeah. that um, I'm very, very interested in, and you definitely can help me uh, out with. Um, could we talk about, a little bit about mirror neurons? Very, very sexy subject. Sure. Yeah, sure. Mirror neurons. Yeah. Um, and, and how they relate to our understanding of others or, or what. So, I mean, I first read about mirror neurons years ago sure. and, and it was presented, you know, I, I remember reading V.S. Ramachandran mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and he's very excited about mirror neurons and, and there's and there's a lot of people since that mm -hmm. have been pretty critical about some of the research right so can yeah. you i i don't know we haven't if we have talked about them on the podcast it's been very briefly sure. so if you could set up the subject sure. and, um so and ramachandran is someone if you ever have a chance to see him live he is one of the best storytellers i mean I it's just it's magical to listen to him. I don't agree with everything he says, but I would go to any time he's talking because he's just. I've been trying to email him to yeah. try to get him on. Yeah, he's uh, he's good, and his accent is oh, yeah, yeah, great. I know. Um, in any event, um, so mirror neurons were discovered back in the early '90s. Uh, Giacomo Rizzolatti was in Parma, Italy, studying um, how um, macaque monkeys' brains allow them to do motor stuff. So, you know, he was going in and looking at individual neurons that might respond when um, a monkey picks up a raisin from above or picks up a raisin with using a different sort of approach, coming at it from the side or things like that. So there's all these different ways we can achieve the same goal of picking up a raisin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he was studying which neurons responded to sort of big grips versus precision grips and so on. And uh, at least the way it's written up, and I, and I believe this is true because it's how science usually works, is that they sort of had this serendipitous discovery one day, which is uh, the, the monkey would pick up the raisin and some neurons would fire and others wouldn't fire. They'd put the raisin down. And then the experimenter would come over and pick up the raisin and move it back to sort of its proper location for the next trial of the study. And what they discovered unexpectedly was that sometimes some of the same neurons that were active when the monkey picked up the raisin were also active when the monkey saw the human pick up the raisin the same way. Uh, and so this was a, a pretty remarkable finding because it suggested that single neurons were both involved in performing an action and perceiving an action. And historically, the assumption was those were really separate parts of the mind and brain, that sort of seeing and doing were separate realms. Mm -hmm. And here was something showing that they were overlapping. Um, and this was, you know, this was a big, big deal. I mean, depending on how everything shakes out, this is something that could be Nobel Prize worthy. It's a big deal. Um, as with most discoveries uh, of something new, there is a tendency then to start talking about every possible mystery left that it might explain. So these neurons explain language, they explain imitation, they explain uh, empathy, they explain social understanding, they explain why we enjoy watching football instead of just playing football. It's, like calling something the God particle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's one of those. And there, you know, there's been a lot of examples, it's not the only one. And I also think it makes sense when you have something new to sort of try it out on all these things and say, well, what does it explain? I think the data pretty clearly and strongly supports the idea that these neurons seem to be central, uh, centrally involved in us being able to imitate each other. So I think the imitation story um, holds up really nicely. And actually, my neighbor, Marco Iacoboni, who lives about six houses from here, he's one of the ones who really pushed that story early. He ran the first neuroimaging study on mirror neurons and imitation. And I, I think the data supports that nicely. Um, there are other studies that I don't actually know as much about. I think the one about uh, mirror neurons give us some intuitive insight into what the other person is experiencing. Um, I haven't seen data that persuades me that that one uh, is true. It's still, in the long scheme of things, early days. Uh, we've known about these things for 20 years, but that's not 
a thousand years, that's a little bit of time. And, uh, but I haven't been persuaded that that's what it does. What it does do is something I think a lot less sexy, and we've seen this in our own research and others have seen this as well, is that as we walk through our days and we see the sort of uh, what William James called the blooming buzzing confusion around us, mm. you know, we have all these mechanisms for taking that mess of stuff, moving and cutting it up into sensible ways and saying this is an object, that's an object. There's nothing more blooming and buzzing than other people. They move unpredictably, not when we expect them to. They seem to have sort of spirits animating them and all of that. And so you have their movements, and their movements aren't intrinsically about anything, but we as humans need to understand others in terms of their intentions, their goals, and so on. And so as I mentioned earlier, when you see me lifting up this can of soda, right. you sort of intuitively know I want a drink because I'm thirsty. And so, yeah, all, all all of the geometry involved isn't all that important to no, me. No, it's not right. And you don't even if you focused on that, it would actually distract you from the levels of analysis you care about. Right. So, from our work, what we think the mirror neurons um, and the regions that contain the mirror neurons seem to be doing is they take the world of movement and they parse it into action. So instead of just seeing a blur of movements, you say he's lifting a soda, he's walking to the front door. That sounds so simple, but if you lack that, you would never have the stuff that you could then talk about to say, why is he walking to the front door, or why is he lifting the soda? So I think there's another network that answers the question why, but that network that answers the question why, it gets its inputs from this system that tells you what, what is happening. And I think the mirror neuron system codes how someone is doing something and what it is that they're doing so that the rest of the mentalizing network that we talked about earlier mm -hmm. could then use that as a premise and say, if this person is walking towards the front door, what might that tell me about their goals, their fears, whatever it is? And then I can take other knowledge I have about that person, put that all together and say, oh, he was waiting for a package and he heard the doorbell ring and he's hoping the package came. And I can tell a story, a narrative about that. So I think it plays a key role. I don't think it's as sexy as the story that people got excited about initially, but I could be wrong too. Right. It's just where I'm at now. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, my Matt. pleasure. Thank um, you so much. And uh, a wonderful book. I can't wait to read the last, uh, the last two or three chapters. Everyone should check out social. I'll make sure and put links up on the herewearepodcast.com website. So thank you guys for listening. And, uh, oh, make sure and uh, Matt... You're one of the more popular, um, as far as Twitter goes, you're one of the more popular scientists out there. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at social underscore brains with an S at the end. So it's brains plural, social underscore brains. Yeah, and I post about new stuff from psychology and social neuroscience and, and neuroscience in general uh, all the time on my Twitter feed. So I'll have that uh, as well at, on the herewearepodcast.com website. Thank you guys so much for listening and being curious, and we'll talk with you next week. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure and check out Matt's book, Social. It's wonderful. I didn't get a chance to finish it before our interview, um, which is often the case. Uh, I just have a very big reading list, uh, but I've continued reading it uh, after the fact and it's a or after the interview and it's a uh, it's a wonderful book um, a lot of times after an interview I just move on to the next thing because I have a limited amount of time but this one I'm making sure to finish fantastic book you don't have to take my word for it either you can go on to Amazon and check it out it has uh, right now I'm looking at it it has 114 customer reviews it has uh, average rating of four and a half stars that is quite impressive um for uh, especially if, uh, you know I, I buy a lot of science books and that is a very very uh high rating and a popular book so make sure and check out social why our brains are wired to connect remember you support my guests you're supporting the podcast uh, a guest comes on the show and sells some books that helps me get more guests and helps me get wonderful guests like matt back on the program so Check out social, why our brains are wired to connect. Speaking of books, um, next week on the program, uh, uh, I'm having a repeat guest. This is 
he was on episode five and it was turned out to be a lot of people's uh one of the one of your guys's favorite episodes a lot of people wrote me and told me that i got to get jeremy genovese back on uh he uh, we talked about his book remembering willie nelson all about memory uh do you remember um if you if you don't um or if you didn't listen to that i know a lot of you are just just now listening to some of your first episodes you're just discovering this podcast um again i do like to repeat it does help to start uh from the beginning just because we build on ideas over time and not a requirement merely a suggestion to make it a bit more enjoyable for you um but if if you didn't hear that episode or you don't remember you may want to go back and listen to um the episode five jeremy genovese and uh again you can check out his book remembering willie nelson on Amazon um, or wherever you prefer to get books. So, yeah, that's about it. Um, you guys are awesome. This is, uh, we're almost at the year mark now. Almost been doing this podcast for a year and somehow um, I'm still getting amazing guests like Matt on to uh, introduce completely. Um, new and and different takes uh, new and different subjects and in different takes on subjects that we've already explored with other guests and uh so fascinating stuff this is going to be never ending um it's going to be a million things to talk about and we have so much more to learn i'm excited i'm excited for me i'm excited for you guys we're doing it together hooray Take care, everybody. Have a good week, and I'll talk to you next week. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island. Yeah. And he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 